Coming up on the show today, very low vaccination rates in high level. The Premier and the Indigenous Relations Minister announcing $8 million in funding today to support Indigenous communities in Alberta and more troubling news out of China. Hundreds, thousands of people disappearing into government detention facilities. Taking a look at what's going on with vaccination in our country and in our province, and we're doing very, very well, especially when it comes to first doses. We have now um, moved into the top ranks in terms of countries that have managed to get at least one dose delivered to the population uh, in terms of what we're doing nationally. And when we take a look at what's going on provincially, we're also doing extremely well, especially when it comes to second doses. We have now reached about 71% with first doses delivered, and uh, we're now over 30% with second doses delivered in the province of Alberta. So we're, we're cranking along pretty quickly here in terms of getting vaccines delivered. But there was an interesting, you know, when you break it down into different regions, one really stood out to me, and I uh, I was kind of surprised by it. High level uh, up in northern Alberta is at 14.1% vaccination rate. Way, way below the rest of the province. Now, why? What's going on there? Why is it so different? Well, let's find out. Let's chat with the mayor of high level. We have Crystal McAteer joining us now. Um, Mayor, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first of all put this into context. We're talking about a very low percentage of 14.1, but how many people does that represent? Like it's, We're not talking about tens of thousands of people, right? Correct. Um, high level is a small community within the Mackenzie County, and they always say the high level region, but it is actually the Mackenzie County region, which is, if you put it in perspective, the size of New Brunswick. So high level only makes up 20% of the population mm-hmm. of the county. And, uh, yeah, I can, uh, I can confident, well, I shouldn't say I can confidently <laughs> say because Alberta Health Services won't give us that information per community, but a, a high majority of high level residents have been uh, vaccinated. When we take a look at, you know, COVID, and I think, you know, if it's in your face and, you know, if you know people who are getting sick and you're seeing what's going on, if you're talking about Edmonton and Calgary and Fort McMurray and Banff and what they went through, I think there's probably an added emphasis on getting vaccinated. What's it like in high level? Have you dealt with COVID? Has it had any impact on that region at all? Yes, we've certainly dealt with uh, a lot of COVID in in uh, certain communities in our geographical area um, and in in amongst the First Nations. I don't like to speak for those communities, but included in, in that uh, count were a lot of people from those areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that's not the reason. What do you think the reason is? Why, why is the vaccination rate lagging so much in, in your part of the province? Um, well, we have uh, we have a lack of uh, broadband number one amongst our First Nations community and even our rural high level, and it's very difficult for people to make appointments. Um, my mother-in-law was online; she was number eight thousand trying to make make a appointment, and uh, then the calls are at drops. So, I mean, there's those frustrations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, once you make the appointment, uh, you come into high level, uh, you're 120 kilometers away from, you know, the nearest community, other community. Yeah. 
I, I know that the First Nations have been going door to door vaccinating, but people are very, very leery because there's a, a huge amount of information, 90% of it wrong, that they are receiving. So um, they're very leery of the vaccination. So there's a lot of hesitancy in, in the community in terms of going out and getting vaccinated. They have, they have the concerns about, who knows, all, all the different ones that we've heard about why you shouldn't get right. vaccinated, right? Right, right, it, right. And some of the First Nations are using traditional medicine. They're not going to get the vaccine. They believe in traditional medicine, and that's what they're using. Um, is there a campaign to try and dispel some of that misinformation among communities up there that may be showing some hesitancy? Definitely. Uh, the town of High Level posts almost daily about COVID and uh, the benefits of getting the vaccination. And also on the First Nations, many of the elders are posting, stating that they have gotten the vaccination and they're fine and everybody should be vaccinated. So there is that. Is there any issue with supply? Is it, you know, being, you know, farther from the big cities, has there been an issue with, with getting vaccines into the community? Or do you have the supply that you need? You just can't get people to come and get it. We do have the supply we need. It's, uh, I know myself, I was vaccinated through Little Red River Cremation. I'm fully vaccinated. Um, they had extra supply, so they brought it into the town of High Level. And many of our first responders and uh, educators and hospital staff were vaccinated through them, as well as the Denidaw had extra vaccines. And a lot of our RCMP and, and other people in the community were vaccinated through them. So there is the will to mm-hmm. be vaccinated. And I think we are having a good steady supply. One of the other concerns that I have is because I'm vaccinated through the First Nations, that our numbers, like that's Federal Health Canada, supplies the vaccine, and they have the information, but it has not been uploaded into Connect Care or given to Alberta Health Services yet. If I go on to my digital page, my vaccines aren't there. Oh, so the number could be considerably higher than, than what is being reported by the province. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. We have we have probably, I want to say, and I, I, don't quote me, but probably around seven thousand First Nations and Métis people here. Yeah. And yeah, they get their their vaccines through Health Canada, and those two are not quite talking to one another right now. How ridiculous is that? Hey, I mean, good I know. heaven's sake. Um, are you concerned? Are you concerned when we're seeing, you know, the province about to open up July 1st? And if and if you're in a position, I, I can imagine, let's say it is 15% vaccination rate. One case of the Delta variant up there could cause you all kinds of problems. Yeah, exactly. And that's the biggest thing that concerns me is that variant. And I've spoken to different people about getting vaccinated that are hesitant, but there is there's no way you're going to convince those people to, to get the vaccine. Uh, unfortunately, that's their belief, and uh, you have to respect that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, well, we'll check in down the road, Mayor, and uh, hopefully the numbers come up and you're in a good, safe position by the time July 1st rolls around. But I really appreciate your time this morning. 
Yes, I hope we're open for the summer, but not closed for the fall. That's my biggest concern. I think a lot of people share that concern. (laughs) Fingers crossed. I'm being very optimistic. I think we're going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Okay. Thanks very much, Mayor. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Bye. That is Mayor Crystal McAteer of uh, the Mayor of High Level. Premier Jason Kenney and Indigenous uh, Relations Minister Rick Wilson uh, talking about support for um, the finding of unmarked graves and undocumented deaths at Alberta Residential Schools. Let's listen to that news conference live. Thank you, Chief Warren, for starting us off in a good way. About two weeks ago, uh, I made him a commitment on behalf of Alberta's government. It was to support Indigenous-led research into undocumented deaths and burials of Indigenous children at the residential school sites. The announcement followed the discovery of the remains of the 215 children in a mass burial site at a former residential school in Kamloops, BC. I don't believe I'm overstating it when I say that Canadians and Albertans are deeply shaken by this horrifying revelation. In this country, we've skirted the truth. Even though residential survivors and elders have been telling us for years that many children did not find their way home. Facing it is the start of reconciliation with our Indigenous people. In these disquieting days, we are learning why truth must precede reconciliation. And that is why we're here today. To support our Indigenous-led actions, to examine, reveal, and honour the truth of children who died in these schools. Children who were forcibly taken from their families and who after decades and decades have still not made it home. There are families and communities who are looking to government for help. And we are here to help with the healing. I'm now gonna invite uh, Premier Jason Kenney to provide details of this new program. Premier Kenney. Thank you very much, uh, Minister, and uh, thank you, Chief Morin, for opening us in a good way with those words of prayer, and thank you for welcoming us to traditional uh, Treaty 6 territory and uh, to the area of your Enoch First Nation. Thank you as well, uh, Chief uh, Aaron. I appreciate you you being here, coming all the way up uh, from Stony Territory and uh, to Stan Delorme. Thank you for representing Métis Settlement at Buffalo Lake for this uh, important step forward about uh, reconciliation and honouring the lives of young people who were separated from their families as a result of the brutally unjust uh, Canadian policy of Indian residential schools. The discovery of uh, 215 remains of students at the former Kamloops residential school has shaken our nation and called all of us to reflect on the wickedness of the Indian residential school system which existed in this country for uh, a century. Of the more than 100,000 young 
Aboriginal children who were taken away from their parents, stolen from their families by the state, and then often faced uh, terrible living conditions, sometimes dangerous living conditions, and sometimes faced efforts by the authorities to literally beat their language and culture out of them. Uh, The horrendousness of that system is, is hard for us today to comprehend. And we have now been reminded that uh, there have been many uh, of those students who were buried um, in unmarked graves or graves that have been lost. And we've been reminded that we have a moral obligation to find them, to recover their memory, to honor those sites and their lives. This is primarily responsibility of First Nations communities. And we acknowledge, first of all, the very important work that has already been done uh, before and since the publication of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. Uh, First Nations communities have gone back to many of these sites uh, to honor the graves, uh, and to discover lost cemeteries. But much more of that work needs to be done. Uh, The Truth and Reconciliation Commission chapter on missing children and unmarked graves underscores the importance of this work being led by Indigenous people. Each of them will have their own approach about what is the best way and we will honor that. Alberta's government wants to do its part to help First Nations do that critical work and so today we are announcing the creation of an eight million dollar Alberta grant program to support First Nations in uh, discovering uh, and honoring uh, lost grave sites of Indian residential school students across our province. While the residential school system was established by the federal government of Canada, we know that the province with the largest number of residential schools was Alberta. Many of those sites no longer exist. They've been, in a sense, lost to history. And yet we can conclude that all or most of those sites must have uh, graves uh, uh, close to them. And uh, so we will be providing these grants to First Nations uh, and Métis communities uh, who have proposals about how to research and identify these unmarked graves and cemeteries and how most appropriately to honour them. Uh, The Alberta Residential Schools Community Research Grant is open to Indigenous communities and groups Uh, as I say, to lead research into undocumented residential school deaths and burials. These grants will go to Indigenous organizations who will decide how best to do the research. We understand that in some cases there are members of impacted communities who may not want to disturb these grave sites for spiritual reasons. Instead, they may want to erect a permanent commemoration or they may want to do, some may want to do full archaeological research that would require cooperation with technical experts and advanced scientific equipment. 
whatever the choices they make, we will be there to support them with this $8 million fund, which will also be available for research, including gathering oral histories and the knowledge of elders, engagement to determine how communities wish to proceed with a burial site, use of ground-penetrating radar and other technologies to explore potential unmarked burial sites, partnering with experts experienced in locating uh, human burials, and maintenance and commemorative work, such as installation or restoration of grave markers, placement of memorials or commemoration events. Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission made a number of recommendations which Alberta's government is taking action on. And I want to thank Minister Wilson for working with colleagues on doing so. One of those recommendations number, or one of those calls to action number 71, was for provinces and their uh, chief coroners uh, to work with the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation on identifying any archival records of uh, where students lived and especially where they may have died at residential school sites in their provinces. Unfortunately, our archival records from that long period are limited, and in some cases, very little remains. But uh, Alberta's government is leaving no stone unturned uh, to uh, dig through all of our archival records to find whatever we can to make that available to the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation and to uh, any local First Nations that may be interested. So, and we are uh, eager to work as well with the Government of Canada, whose primary legal responsibility this is, uh, to, uh, as well as with First Nations, uh, to do everything we can to reclaim lost burial sites. Uh, It is true that many of these children passed away from diseases that were then common at that time. But it's also true that the death rate for children at residential schools was far, far higher than for children in the general population, a reflection of the substandard and often dangerous living conditions that they were forced to experience. Uh, The trauma has, for many families, become intergenerational. And we hope that this action... uh, will be uh, one small evidence of the desire of of Albertans uh, to pursue the path of reconciliation and to honour those children uh, whose lives were lost. Uh, We'll continue with uh, our coverage of the announcement from the provincial government today that they are setting up an $8 million grant program that can be accessed by Indigenous groups in the province of Alberta who want to, uh, as the Premier calls it, discover and honour what he calls lost graves or unmarked graves uh, or undocumented deaths. Uh, The Premier pointing out that there were more residential schools in Alberta than in anywhere else, and he says we have to assume that um, there are similar situations to what we saw in Kamloops in our province. Um, He says it will be left up to the Indigenous leaders to decide what they want to do at these sites, pointing out that some may not want to disturb them for spiritual reasons. Others may want to um, build memorials. Others may want to, you know, involve archaeological experts or technology to get an assessment of exactly what the situation is. So uh, that will be left up to the Indigenous leaders. And we're now hearing from them as part of this news conference. So uh, we'll return to their comments now. 
Thank you, Premier, for your words in support of this program. I know a lot of people have been carrying around a, a lot of sorrow here. And this, this new program, it's, it's not going to change the past, but it, help, it can help build a better future. And we have a web page live now for eligible communities and organizations to get the details and to put in their applications. So I strongly encourage uh, the communities to work together where they can on applications for the sites where they lost family members. But any, any eligible community can apply for their own work at the site and they can qualify for up to $150,000 in grant funding for the type of work that Premier Kenny just uh, spoke about. Along with federal grants, the successful applicants could end up getting funding for most of their costs and maybe help to get long-weighted answers before too much more time passes. So right now I'd like to turn it back to uh, Chief Billy Morn of uh, Enoch uh, to speak about the importance of, of taking this action. Minister Rick, Premier Kenny, uh, Nistis, Ogamau, uh, Aaron, uh, Stan, Chairman uh, Metis, Buffalo Lake. Um, I was at a uh, our culture camp, Muskegsi culture camp, that's Enoch Cree Nation, this morning, and I was sitting in ceremony, uh, praying for this uh, announcement that uh, I get to be a part of, and in that ceremony. There were three boys, probably seven, eight years old. And uh, I watched them. I watched them in that ceremony. And uh, you can tell one of them has never been in that ceremony before. And um, I just had to say how proud I was. I, I, I had to speak in that ceremony and I had to say how proud I was of them being there and how fortunate they were to be there how this space wasn't created um, for a long time for them. And I was watching them and um, the boy who has never even been in that ceremony, he, he, he gave up his seat for somebody next to him who was a little bit older. Had a, he was sitting on a cushion. He said, oh, take my cushion. And um, just watching those boys in ceremony and how inherently their respect and Nehiel Pamatsu and Nehiel worldview spirit lives in them um and how we maybe uh i told them i didn't get to grow up like this this opportunity wasn't afforded to me like how it is today and it certainly wasn't afforded to their ancestors who went to residential school and so it's a good day today uh, i don't think things are coincidence all the time those young boys uh in that ceremony gave me a lot of hope and today the announcement from our friends at the province uh, give me a lot of hope too. Um, I'm 34 and what I always say when I talk about residential schools, I never went to residential school. Um, my mom and dad never went to residential school. But when the 215 came out, 12 o'clock at night, Nohkam uh, Chapan, who's 81, called me at 12 o'clock at night and she never calls me. And she just needed to talk. And it was a good talk. But she just she said she needed to talk to someone and she called me. I told her I'm just very, very fortunate that you were a cycle breaker. Um, your son was a cycle breaker. And I'll just continue the work to be the best cycle breaker of uh, abuse 
and the wrongfulness that was done to you and all of our relations. Um, with this announcement today, um, that story never ends. It keeps going. And uh, those open wounds are very much open at this time with uh, Kamloops and things that are going around the country right now. And we can forget about our differences at times like these. And whether you're a representative of the provincial crown or you're an Edmontonian or you're a government bureaucrat or you're from the Métis settlement or you're a chief from Treaty 6 or 7 or 8 or you're a survivor, we're still all treaty people. We all come together to do the right by just to do right by uh, those, pe those young people. So for the 8 million today, um, it's not about the number, but you can't help but sometimes just, it's not about the number, but compare it to, you know, some other announcements that have been made. It's a, it's a great start. I got to say that on behalf of the province, it's a great start when you compare it to the federal government announcement. It's a great start for this place. And the premier spoke about it. This is where the most residential schools were provincially. And so that's a great start. That's a great action. That's a great reconciliation. Behind me is the U of A and, you know, they've reached out already and told me that we would like to help you, the Prairie Institute of Indigenous Archaeology and Technology. We just want to help. Uh, Kisha Supernote has already done great work for us at Enoch Cree Nation. And so some of this work, depending on which community you're from, is going to be really technical and there's going to be a lot of capacity, if so choosing by the elders and their survivors in those communities if they want to do that type of work. But I'm also thankful for the province to make it so flexible that, you know, maybe it's not hard, hard heavy archaeological work. Maybe it's more about creating that permanent story in a monument. And so I'm just thankful um, the province allowed for that. They gave the decision-making capacity back the, um, the nations and the settlements themselves. It's a good move. And... Uh, it's sunny today. Uh, when Minister Rick, my friend, was speaking, the sun came out. He's a good guy. He, he works hard for, to, make, to build relationships. And it's, always, it's a tough road still. But he's a good guy, and he does right by us. And I'm just thankful for all the work and his, his staff did for this. And hi, hi, kinanaskumtinawa. Right now, though, we're going to switch gears. And uh, we talk about it a lot on the show. Uh, and that's the whole situation with the Chinese government and, and some of the things that they do. At the G7 summit and uh, the NATO summit last week, China was a big part of the conversation, you know, with Western democracies talking a lot about trying to form a, a united front and holding China accountable for growing violations of, you know, international norms and laws and human rights. And a new report from human rights activists is shining a light on yet another example of the Chinese government's violation of uh, rights in that country. And uh, to get the details on that, we are joined now by Laura Harth, who is the campaign director for Safeguard Defenders. Laura, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good morning, Trey, and thank you for having me. Um, I think this is the first time I've ever spoken with somebody from Safeguard Defenders. So uh, tell us about the group that you're with and the work that you do. So we are actually a small organization. We're a foundation based uh, in, in, in Spain, and we're working in some of the most hostile, let's say, environments. Uh, in Eastern Asia, especially in uh, China, obviously, we, a lot of the work we do is, is not necessarily um, public, but we try to assist human rights defenders, lawyers, 
um, within the country and obviously raise awareness about what is going on inside the country to the larger public abroad and sensibilize, you know, uh, governmental institutions abroad and also international institutions, especially the UN, on, on the mass violations, the crimes against humanity that are going on there every single day. Yeah, and that's what we're going to do today is talk about some of the things that are going on and raise awareness about it. Um, uh, we're, we're talking primarily today about, I guess you can call it just the disappearing of people, correct? Right? Forced detention of people? Exactly. We're talking about the enforced disappearance of people. Enforced disappearance is what it's been dubbed already by 10 UN special procedures. So in 2018, we filed the first report with these 10 UN special procedures uh, regarding the system called residential surveillance at a designated location, Mm -hmm. uh, which was legalized in a way in 2013. Um, And so they dubbed it enforced disappearances. They, They warned for the huge risk of torture inside and what we've done over the years is document what is going on inside these secret jails they're really secret jails this is before any arrest this is before you know formal detention this is before trial and people are kept there legally in a way for up to i mean legally under chinese law obviously this is completely illegal under under any international standard but people can be kept there for up to six months sometimes they're kept longer before they even move to a formal arrest. Some are never formally arrested at all, so it's also a tool of of intimidation. And so um, what we've documented on the basis of of 175 direct testimonies of both, obviously, Chinese people, but also foreigners, because this is a system uh, where, unfortunately, foreigners end up in as well, and they're the same as hostage diplomacy, and, and, and I guess we can come back to that as later, because, you know, it also involves Canada. It does. Um, and so what we've documented with this new report locked up is really um, a second-person account of the entire journey people go through once they're put into the system, from the moment they're taken until the moment they're hopefully released or officially arrested. And so it gives really um, a view inside of what these people are going through, the torture, um, the constant harassment, the 24-7 surveillance, um, the in- being annoyed as well because you know you are uh, in solitary confinement which is which is obviously torture in itself so i would really recommend anybody interested in knowing also what um the two michaels michael kovrick and michael Stavor went through in their first six months you know in this kind of secret detention within china to take a look at the report to really get an idea of what it's like inside and what has been happening in China all this time. Yes, let's go through that a bit. Like, are these people just plucked right off the street? Is is it that, you know, brazen? How how do these people end up in these facilities? It's very brazen. You may be taken at night from from your home, from your hotel room. You may be taken even during, you know, lunch or dinner. When they decide you, you have to be taken. They can just come. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll be black hooded. Um, You're driven around, so you don't know. They, They kind of try to disorient you. So they bring you then to this um, secret detention facility, which, again, it's, it's not a formal prison, right? There, there may be abandoned police buildings. There may be even um, offices, you know, formally registered as often offices of companies. Um, there may be abandoned hotels. And so they've kind of made these uh, structures where you'll be confined into a very, very small room where there's basically nothing, which is also made suicide-proof, and where you'll be watched all the time. Um, by police officers, even while you are sleeping. Um, you won't be able to look outside. Maybe you can capture some sound from outside to get an idea of, of where you are exactly. But basically, the whole system is set up to disorient you, to uh, instill fear. And 
so you're left to the complete um, control of the people holding you, which obviously gives them enormous power. And we're not even talking about the, you know, the further t- torture that is inflicted upon upon you once you're inside. Um, so it's really a, a system set up to one intimidate, because again, this is very important. Many people that are placed into RSDL are not later formally arrested. So it's to instill fear, not only on the person directly involved, but on the entire community, you know, of human rights defenders, of lawyers, of many people going going through this. Um, it's also used to extract confessions, obviously forced confessions. So for you to 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 say what they want, basically, these confessions may also be um, taped and broadcasted on, on, on national networks or even international networks such as CGTN, which includes, which is still being broadcasted also in Canada, notwithstanding mounting criticism. Um, and so this whole system is set up to break you, basically. Right. Um, so we can go further into that if you want. But. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, you mentioned some of the people who've been, you know, you've, you've spoken with people who were in these centres, and you mentioned some of the you know, groupings of people that are being subjected to this. What kind of, um, you know, is it is it basically uh, people opposed to the communist regime that find themselves in this situation? Who's ending up in these facilities? Look, what we've done um, in a new a follow-up submission next to this report that we just released is we went and looked at the data that is available. Obviously, we have a huge issue in China of, you know, um, transparency, on these kind of questions. But so what we just did this week as well was send a follow-up submission to the ten, uh, same 10 uh, UN special procedures that already denounced the system that right. sent a joint letter of allegation to China in 2018, to which China obviously didn't respond. But on the basis of some of the data that is publicly available, we were able to, to calculate that at least, and this is a very, very prudent estimate, right? We think it's much more, but we want it to be very conservative. So we can estimate that since 2013, up till the end of next year, at least 57,000 people were put through this system. And again, this is a very conservative estimate because this would only include those people that are actually brought to trial afterwards. So that that does not include all the people that are never formally arrested or never go to trial. What's more, all the people that are actually charged under national security law um, charges, are never officially logged in the system, so they will not appear. And obviously we know that national security charges is one of the uh, preferential charges maybe against those that may be critical of the regime. And obviously it goes without saying that these people are not afforded any of the things that we would accept as being standard human rights, you know, legal representation, uh, contact with families, with embassies, anything like that. None of that is available to these people. Exactly. So... um, Next to the torture of the system itself, the torture inflicted within the system, people are deprived of any contact with the outside world. The law states that their family members should be informed of where they are, but we know that this most of the time does not happen. So this is also why it's enforced disappearances, right? Because they just disappear literally. Um, You will have no contact with lawyers. Consular access, if you're a foreigner, most of the time will be denied or will be, you know, kept to a minimum. This is also something, again, that we saw in the case of the two, two Michaels, Michaels yeah. co-encounter, again, to, to, to all international laws and the bilateral consular agreement between Canada and the, and the People's Republic of China. So exactly, it's counter to any international uh, legal standard regarding fair trial, access to uh, lawyers, or even conditions of detention. 
And you know, like you mentioned, you know, the international community is aware of this, hasn't really done anything. Uh, I don't know what they can do, but the, the fact of the matter is when they don't, we know there's other regimes that will pursue these kinds of avenues. And if there's no attempt with the international community to stop it, this could just be the start of not emboldening them, but making it seem like it's it's okay and the international community is not going to get involved and stop it in any way, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you're you're exactly on point, and actually that's that's why we've been announcing. I mean, I think a lot of the attention lately has gone, and, and rightfully and finally, to what is happening to ethnic and religious minorities in China, sure. and we've seen how hard it is to get anything done there. Um, I think what's important with this report, with these numbers, and there will be more reports coming out, is to show just how much this repression really regards the entire population of China, right? So it's not like there's a silent, happy majority, and then there's the ethnic and religious uh, minorities. You know, the system of repression is widespread. It's systematic uh, to keep the CCP in power. But what you said, exactly what we've been seeing from China, also they've stepped up their game within international fora. They're talk a, a lot, talking a lot about uh, responsible multilateralism and everything. But also, for example, within the UN Human Rights Council, they've been campaigning heavily over the past years um, as this repression is going up for the principle of non-interference, um, saying that, you know, human rights are not universal as they are written. They're a Western concept and there's human rights with Chinese characteristics. And so they've really been pushing this message. And obviously, they're getting support in this within international fora from other authoritarian regimes and countries that um, are having an atrocious human rights record. So the risk that you described is very real. What can we do? We need to raise awareness. We need to invest in the UN, the special procedures that are there, but also governments um, in, in, I would say, in democratic countries, countries that abide by the rule of law, need to step up their game in denouncing this and really coming together in, in working towards finding a, a solution. Because obviously, you know, China notoriously is not allowing any independent investigation yeah. to go on on its territory. It's not, you know, submitting its reports as it should regularly, for example, to the Committee Against Torture, uh, where it's late by two years now. So it, it, it is difficult. Um, but at least we need to denounce it and we need to raise awareness on, on what is going on. And I think one of the things that the reason that the people that testified for these reports um, came forward, notwithstanding the fact that once they are released, they are you know, required to sign a document that they will not talk about what happened um, because they might be persecuted again. So, again, the, the barrier to speak up is, is very high. But they did because it's the only way, in a sense, also, you know, to find closure, to at least denounce what's been happening to them. And so I think we owe it to those, um, you know, 57,000 victims and many more to, to speak about this, to raise awareness um, and to do everything we can to actually counter this ongoing and growing repression, which really is exponential within the People's Republic of China over the past years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I appreciate the work and I appreciate you coming on and sharing it with us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Shay. That is Laura Harth who is the campaign director with Safeguard Defenders. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.